it's like we never were here, but we've always been here. Um, <laughs> recording this podcast, we've never left. Uh, okay, so this is um, podcast take two. Uh, we're doing a Kubrick, but basically, I'm not happy until everybody's got it perfect. So we're doing our 200 takes of the podcast. Time has come. Catherine Bigelow! This and some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple of days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Spoil? <laughs> Did he spoil me? <laughs> I remember quite clearly it was 1946 and I was four years old. My mother took me to see King Vidor's Duel in the Sun. All I know is that first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. Babel, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. Well, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. Al film italiano Deserto Rosso di Michelangelo. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so you do the math. Three artists in the presentation of the Pompadour. Adele, Lea, and Abdel Afid Kenji. Yo la fta. Aquí el lado, Feli, que soy. Estizino. This is Bianca, and this is the Filmotomy Podcast, episode 51. Well, today, we're checking into the Overlook Hotel. In fact, it's almost like we've always been here. Joining me to come play forever and ever, we have Joel. Hi, everybody. I'm back. Yeah, you found your way out of the maze to get to us, uh, retracing your steps. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Also, swinging that axe, we've got Doug. Hi, everyone. Checking in for an extended stay. (laughs) You're never going to (laughs) leave. And our new caretaker, it's it's Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Uh, Yeah, so I'm the new caretaker. Please, for the love of God, don't come at me with an axe. (laughs) Put it down, Doug. Put it down. Now, um, so, uh, if you haven't guessed, we're going to be discussing The Shining and the documentary to uh, Room 237 and all crazy kinds of theories about what The Shining is really about. And some of them are pretty crazy. So, before we get into discussing the documentary, um, let's get uh, some sort of our first reactions um, to watching The Shining and how many times you've seen it, just generally what we think of it all together. Joel, um, when did you first see The Shining? Well, I was eight years old when I first saw it. It was on cable TV. I remember watching the the commercial about it, like they were going to show this movie. I was like, I want to see that. I, I couldn't sleep uh, the next night and that night and a week and a month and <laughs> everything, you know. Uh, then I saw it again when I was 12 and I still couldn't sleep after it. <laughs> so I decided not to watch it again until I was uh, grown up, an adult. I saw it when I was 18, I think, uh, when, I, uh, when I began watching films uh, compulsively. I watch it with another, uh, with other eyes, you know, like uh, 
I could see the the film elements, what Kubrick wanted us to see. Yeah, I, I, I could sleep better, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, because I wasn't scared anymore and, and I had mature, so I understood some of the things Kubrick wanted us to to understand. The fact that you saw it eight years old is crazy to me. <laughs> but to, to be fair, it was a pretty, uh, like, very edited version of the movie. Uh, it wasn't the one I watched when I was 18. The, when I was 18, I watched the full one. So, yeah. <laughs> but still, that, that edited version was pretty gruesome, pretty scary still. Yeah. So, yeah. I can imagine, especially sort of trying to process that as an eight-year-old. My God. The the traumatized, the, the scene that traumatized me the most and still, like, I have it here in my head is the one of the twins, you know, mm. that they appear in the in the uh, the hallway uh, with the blood and the, oh, my God, uh, that scene always uh, freaked me out, always. I think it's the fact that they, they talk together at the same time yeah. in that creepy twin fashion <laughs> <laughs> that too yeah uh, Doug what about you so I had a kind of backwards way into The Shining uh, I actually saw the miniseries version first which uh, starred Stephen Webber and Rebecca De Mornay which I think it was 96 or 90, it might have been 97 so I was around uh, 11 or 12 at the time and I, I actually found the miniseries really, really unsettling. Um, from all accounts, it follows the book very closely. I haven't actually read the book, but I believe it's a more faithful adaptation to the book. Um, but then it kind of got me interested in the whole The Shining story and where this miniseries had come from. So I sort of sought out the Stanley Kubrick version and realized how wildly different it is. Obviously it's far more condensed because a mini series runs for several hours, whereas a movie is, you know, two hours or so. And it was so interesting to sort of see the differences in the versions and the, the artistic license that Kubrick had taken in some of his imagery, some of his narrative elements, and certainly uh, some of the character choices were so wildly different. And I think seeing it as a teenager who was into movies, but more into movies in just an entertainment sense, not necessarily a critique sense, on the surface, the first time watching The Shining, it's a great horror, thriller, psychological thriller, whatever you want to call it. It's a spooky movie. And that was what I took away from it, of this is a really full-on movie with some really creepy imagery and you know, a really creepy performance from Jack Nicholson and some, some really disturbing elements. And, and that, that was it. But then over the years, getting more into film, getting more into uh, film analysis, the more I watched it, the more you start to see symbolisms and analogies and metaphors and, you know, per- perfectly placed intentional things from, from Kubrick that are meant to suggest something more than just a, standard horror movie or a standard thriller that there's more to this story than just what you're actually seeing i'm very confused i just need a chance to think things over then when you discover something like 
uh, the documentary two thirty room two thirty seven, you see that so many people have analysed this film in so many interesting and different ways that's so sort of eye-opening to not just a film but Kubrick as a filmmaker that he was really someone who didn't just make a movie to scare you or entertain you he really was reaching for something more and whether those theories are correct or not we will never know but all his films have that in them that you can read them in so many different ways and it's it's definitely one of the earliest films I remember seeing that okay, there is more to cinema than just being entertained or just watching pictures. There's, there's, there's more to it. And The Shining is such a perfect example of that in that it can be read so many different ways. And I, I love that about it. And I've, I've lost count of the number of times I've seen it because it's just that movie that you can always watch and you always, no matter how many times you've seen it, it's still unsettling, it's still entertaining, and you're still finding deeper meanings within that narrative. Wendy, Stay away. darling, light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the fuck in. <laughs> Definitely. I think uh, my approach into the film was um, when I, I read the Shining novel, I haven't actually seen the miniseries. I'm not sure if I want to. Um, <laughs> the, the novel, I don't know if it, it, it's a good, it's a good novel, but it's not really, a lot happens in it, a lot more than what actually happens in the actual Kubrick film. And mm. I, you know, the novel is completely different. It's almost like the, you know, the novel to American Psycho compared to the film. It's a completely different type of beast. And going into the the Stanley Kubrick film, I wasn't watching it at eight, like Joel was, uh, <laughs> or even at twelve. Um, uh, but I was watching it when I was eighteen, and I found the film very unsettling. Um, my reading initially was, you know, it's the breakdown of the nuclear family. You know, it's about the. I saw it as maybe something to do with. Um, you know the the rise of liberation you know liberated women and, and feminism because of the wendy character uh, and jack sort of descending into madness and maybe sort of a toxic masculinity type of reading to it so yeah it's a film open which is open up to a lot of different readings and different takes on, on what what you're seeing on screen um that which makes it something completely different sort of set apart from other horror films stop swinging the bat put the bat down Wendy stop it Wendy give me the bat please give me the bat stop it give me the bat stop swinging the bat please stop give me the bat I was sure if I was going to really watch this film because I'd seen it. some of his work is a, um, a lot of his work that I know is very cold and detached in that I, I guess the best way is that it, it, it's like my favorite band Radiohead it's very they're very kind of detached and they're very cold and it's just Kubrick it, is the me, Radiohead of the, of the movie world is that what you're saying yes that's basically <laughs> what I'm saying I love uh, that <laughs> 
and then uh, we're doing this uh, episode fifty one for The Shining and uh, Room two thirty two thirty seven the documentary, and it's like okay, let me give this give uh, this movie a chance, a fair shake, and I seen this twice, once last night, and I I found it hard to sleep afterwards. It just blew me away, and then watching it a second time, I'm still uh, I, I'm I'm still mostly out of loss for words. I've seen this about Kubrick with stuff like Eyes Wide Shut and Full Metal Jacket. Is that I've never seen any any filmmaker that is that is this meticulous, this this committed to uh, getting exactly the shot he wants, the performance he wants for every every inch of this film to line up to what to how he envisions it and he gets it every time reading some of the stories about <clears throat> the shining it's like yeah my my hunch was correct he i mean i guess jack jack nicholson grew tired of working with kubrick because he kept mm-hmm. changing the script daily every mm-hmm. like every line of dialogue <laughs> ended up being changed and he just to the point where he just doesn't he doesn't he doesn't memorize his lines because there's no point to it. Uh, Shelley Duvall had it probably the worst because she he she and he just fought constantly to the point where she became physically ill during during the shoot and started pulling and just started losing her hair and I just feel like I I feel like after a film. Doing a film like this, I, that would make me. That would almost, if I were an actor, that, that would make me just want to go on vacation for like a <laughs> for a, on vacation, almost not, and really consider if I want to come back or not. Kubrick demanded perfection in every scene he he shot and composed, and come hell or high water, he was going to get it. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm almost certain that the that the rivers, that the elevator with the blood coming flowing out that he did several takes of that just to make sure he got the <laughs> waves correct yeah and but i think that then then when they when a director does that to his cast the results kind of speak for themselves like yes that, it, I, I know how awful that is to treat people like that but then when you you're getting those performance out of them like you know shelly duvall probably for a lot of it just isn't even acting she's just that exhausted yeah. she's that stressed out yeah. she's hating on Jack Nicholson, she's probably hating on Stanley Kubrick, and she obviously just instills all of that into her performance, and Jack Nicholson is the same, that his character is going mad, and Jack Nicholson was probably going mad at the same time. Yes. So I think as as harsh as it is for someone like Kubrick to treat his cast as such, you know, when you get the end result like that, it's like, okay, maybe he was doing all this on purpose, and he knew exactly what he was doing. a very grand film dealing with big themes but in the disguise of something very commercial to sell to audiences who wouldn't necessarily go watch something that was a straightforward drama say about you know uh, the genocide of the you know native americans um so Let's move on and, and quickly discuss Room 237 and then get into some of the theories. Doug, what was your sort of uh, reaction to the documentary? 
Um, it's an interesting documentary just uh, in the theories and, and ideas it presents. I, I, as a production itself, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the way this film is actually, this documentary is crafted in that it's only audio from its interviewees. There's no visuals with the subjects who are talking about their theories. Um, I get that. I, I feel like the, the, the director was wanting to focus on the visuals from the film and have people talk over that. But I guess when I watch a documentary, I, I get a better sense of what the person is saying by seeing them actually talking rather than just hearing them. I mean, it's a minor complaint. Um, it's still, it doesn't take away from the, the interesting theories that these people are presenting. I just feel like it, if it was presented in a different style, it may have been a bit more effective, but Certainly a couple of the, the ideas and theories presented I had considered before and had probably heard before, and then a few of them so outrageous and so crazy that it's stuff that I had never, ever considered and cannot believe that anyone has ever considered <laughs> or somehow came up with. Certainly the one that I have always kind of followed along the, the most is the idea of it being an analogy for uh, America's treatment of Native Americans in that in the, in the hotel, there's a lot of Native American motifs on the floor, on the walls. Um, obviously, as, as Jonathan said, that the, the hotel is built on an Indian burial ground, um, that there's an idea also that the famous blood coming out of the elevator is potentially symbolism for how bloody Americans, America's history is in terms of its treatment of Native Americans and the fact that the the party at the end of the film in, in that famous photo that um, Jack becomes a part of took place on the 4th of July, which we all know is a celebration for America, but it is based on their kind of slaughter of Native Americans and how the irony behind that is that, you know, celebrating something that's so blood-stained and so bloody in America's history that potentially the whole film is kind of an is based around that and the documentary certainly presents a lot of strong uh strong evidence to suggest that that that's definitely the the case with this film what's particularly interesting is uh the lift uh, elevator as, as Americans call it I should probably refer to it <laughs> as that uh the elevator shaft is goes you know, the, the theory is that it goes deep into the ground and that's where, you know, it's the hotel's built on uh, Indian burial ground and the blood that, you know, gushes out of the elevator is the blood of all those innocent people who have been slaughtered, um, which is an interesting sort of take on it. Uh, it's d- definitely one of the most visually disturbing moments of, of the <laughs> film. So, and... Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting take on it. Um, Joel, how do you feel? What 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 do you sort of share the same thoughts of the documentary as Doug does? I like the documentary quite a lot. Like, there's there's these nine interpretations about the film, and you just wonder, wow, nine interpretations and and the many more that couldn't fit. Uh, uh, in this documentary, so you, you had to like think Kirk uh, was a genius because he did this film and he let it open 
to so many interpretations that like people think it's about this and about that and that says a lot about how he writes uh, a story and how he uh, translated it uh, to film. Uh, a film that, uh, a story that was already made by Stephen King and he altered it and made it his own. Every person that watches it makes, makes it their own too. Like they, they interpret what they want. I have to agree with Doug, with Doug that maybe the, the most accurate interpretation about it is the one about uh, the slaughter of the Native Americans in, uh, in the United States. And it feels like Kubrick was sending a message to, peop to, Amer to American people specifically that they should not forget their past. Like, it happens so frequently that you ask Uh, some, someone American that uh, do you know your history and they often say no uh, I only know what, what is happening now and a few things about the past mm -hmm. like recent past but, but the real past the history of America they often forget it unless it's Washington unless it's, it's Lincoln you know the, 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 important, the important people and he somehow kind of predicted the future because It's it's that movie so relatable today as it, as it was in 1980. So so yeah, I think it's it's genius from him to to have done that. It's almost like a time capsule, I guess, in a way of Kubrick sort of being able to to show audience, you know, primarily American audience. I guess that's mm -hmm. what it was intended for like a, a summary of their history and you know uh, tell, trying to tell them like this is this is what it's built upon um, and I think we, you know we get that from the, the fact that you know we have the reference that it was built on the Indian burial ground and you know lots of sort of messages in terms of trying to recall your past as well and interesting exchange of lines of dialogue uh, I think is you know, certain people not remembering the horrific events that they, they do and actions they do, like, you know, um, was it Grady? Uh, was it Grady in, in the, the the previous caretaker saying, I, I don't remember that, you know, he's obviously committed a, a, mm. a murder and he's, he's not admitting <laughs> to it. So it's almost like Kubrick is saying, like, we allow history to repeat itself. Um, I think you, you also see that in like it's a, it's a fairly innocent scene, but that when Jack is throwing the ball against the wall, he's actually throwing it against uh, a Native American motif that's, that's painted on the wall, and it's it's kind of like he's he's just so oblivious to how sort of offensive that is to be literally throwing something at a piece of iconography that's associated with a people, and it, it shows that that kind of uh, ignorance. That, that that I think that's what Kubrick is trying to say in that moment of like the, people have forgotten Native Americans and their culture and and what was done to them and you're going to stand there and throw a ball against basically their history um, and and sort of just tr get, treat it with such disdain that you can you can play a game against it like that and it it's stuff like that that I think you may not notice on on first go it's like oh it's just Jack playing a ball game because he's bored but then when you see what's happening in the background. That's like classic Kubrick of you need to look beyond 
what's being presented in front of you to see what I'm really trying to say. So moving on to another theory is that it's uh, the film is actually sort of dealing with the themes of the Holocaust, that Kubrick himself was Jewish uh, and was very interested in, in the Holocaust and what took place. Now, this one I, I find quite interesting because the, the documentary picks up on the German typewriter and how that's sort of referencing, you know, lists and the government sort of preparing, you know, the the final solution and, and, and the, the recurring number 42, which is when the final solution sort of began. Yeah, I, I tend to agree because it's it again it's something with Kubrick that nothing sort of happens by chance that that he it sort of if if the the typewriter is a German brand and there's a concerted effort to show that brand quite clearly in a number of of, of frames um, that that he's doing that on purpose that 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 the the typewriter didn't have to have a brand on it at all. It could have been completely blank. It could have been an American brand. It could have been just nothing at all. And yet, to specifically choose a German brand typewriter to be placed in an American hotel, there's no reason for that German typewriter to be there. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, it's there, and it's 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 highlighted quite specifically by Kubrick, which tends to suggest this has been placed here for a very specific reason. I am actually trying to say something with this and you need to pay attention. Before we get into the most craziest and craziest of conspiracy theories, perhaps the one which is the most fun, Jonathan, what do you think The Shining is really about? I feel like it's it, it touches on more of uh, Kubrick's themes of the the underbelly of humanity the 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 worst of our impulses uh how you know despite our best uh, our best intentions and the face we present to toward people you know maybe people we love uh people we want to impress there's always that dark underlying uh, underlying nature to us that our, our our negative impulses the worst aspects of ourselves or of any of any person that we try to hide uh find find their way to the surface and with the uh, jack torrance character you can already just you, you, you just have that sense right off the bat that, that this guy's not on the level hmm. that um he's been five months sober so that adds to okay this guy's not this guy is just kind of teetering on the edge and just trying to find some way, some reason to break to break cold turkey. The movie, like the, the Shining, is also about kind of domestic violence and how it kind of eventually just tears apart the family. And uh, the, the the scene with uh, the with the uh, boy, and he had um, red marks all over his neck, and his uh, clothes were torn, and the Wendy believes that uh that he had strangled or beaten their son because he had done it before let's let's get into the crazy stuff then okay (laughs) guys um when did we land on the moon we landed on the moon july of 1969 it was a great yep we we all agree that we've been to the moon right yes (laughs) Uh, Joel? I, I've seen First Man, it happened. 
Okay. Well, you, yeah. you saw it in a movie. It definitely Yeah, happened. exactly. <laughs> they didn't plant the flag, but they landed there. <laughs> okay. Um, what if I told you that 2001 Space Odyssey, which was filmed in 1967, uh, was a preparation for the moon landings, which were filmed <laughs> in 1969 by none other than Stanley Kubrick. And... I would say that would that I would say that would first that if that if that's true, that is probably Stanley Kubrick's his worst film yet. <laughs> the moon landing, because, I mean, the it, it, it doesn't have any of his touches. Uh, How does it tie into The Shining? You might ask. <laughs> well, The Shining. Uh, imagine Kubrick. Okay, let's just say for a crazy, uh, crazy second that yes. The 1969 moon landings were faked, and Kubrick filmed them. Uh, he was sworn to secrecy, so he can never tell anyone what he actually did. You know, how would you cope with that secret? Uh, maybe he was just so fed up of keeping it a secret that he decided to take uh, <laughs> the best-selling novel by Stephen King, uh, <laughs> *The Shining*. Uh, make it a film adaptation and secretly tell the world that he was behind the moon landings. <laughs> Even as I say it, I can't say it without laughing. It's, it's <laughs> the craziest, craziest theory ever. And it all rests on the fact that for one scene, uh, Danny wears a jumper with the Apollo spacecraft on it. <laughs> and that's the biggest, that's the, the, the evidence really for it and the fact that apparently the carpet looks like the launch uh, launch bases and that <laughs> you can spell the the word moon room from the the key to room 237 it's so absurd and, and, and like with all the other theories there are so many metaphors and examples and imagery that suggest those theories, like mm. with the Holocaust one and with the Native American one. This is literally one thing. <laughs> and if, he, if, if Kubrick really wanted that to be the real story behind The Shining, it would have been littered with references mm. to the moon, to Neil Armstrong, to NASA, to all sorts of things, and yet there's nothing like that in this film. There's just the the jumper, and then I feel like this whole theory about the room key and, and the 237 miles or whatever, and that, that's been crafted completely around that jumper and nothing else. I don't remember where, where I saw it. I think it was a documentary I saw about uh, Stanley Kubrick in YouTube, and I think it was his widow that said, that he did that on purpose, like like he he made Danny wore that uh, jumper uh, to like mock the people that uh, said that he did that 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 he faked the moon landing in 1969. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it's more that than the movies about it. No, <laughs> right? See, it's just that makes that makes more sense. Yeah, it's just a red herring. Wrapping everything up, do we think the hotel was haunted? Yes or no? Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in.
I, you get the sense that there is some presence, some vengeful spirit presence that's in that that's in the hotel. Given that the the two murdered uh, girls, uh, the murdered uh, wife that appear appears, also kind of the ghosts that come in and out towards the end of the towards the end of the third act, and yet there there's just a lot of um, scenes like. Like uh, the scenes in the Golden Room where uh, Jack Torrance goes to just break cold turkey and have a drink, that it's it, you just have that idea. Like, yeah, this is all in his head. What about you, Doug? Yeah, I, I, I suppose most people on their first viewing, and certainly those who don't, I guess, analyze film in the way that a lot of us do, would probably just just see it as a very simple ghost story in that. This hotel is built on a burial ground, therefore those ghosts are inhabiting the hotel rooms, they're driving the new caretakers crazy, they're haunting them, they're taunting them, they're freaking them out. That this is just a ghost story, that's it, there's no other way to look at it. But you could also then suggest, well, maybe they're all going mad, that they're they're all experiencing the same delusions because... They're, tr- they're all trapped in this hotel, all experiencing cabin fever at the same time, and that theory of this is what isolation does to people. You know, you separate people from humanity and society, and it, it, it screws people's minds, and that's what the brain can do in these situations of, of crisis, essentially, is that, you know, things start to manifest out from your brain and could be happening to multiple people at the same time. So you can definitely play both sides. But I think if you ask the average punter on the street, they would say, yes, this is a ghost story. That's what The Shining's about. It's a spooky tale about ghosts. But given, you know, the way that Kubrick presents things and even the way that Stephen King writes is that there's multiple ways to always look at everything within that film. You could kind of say the same with It and Pennywise. It's like, is that really a ghost coming out of the drain or is it just the imagination of children seeing that? Like that, that that's the way that Stephen King works is that nothing is ever what it seems and you really can't tangibly grasp onto one theory over another. Well, I just came up with a new theory that it's all to do with carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, <laughs> okay. They're all, they're all, did you see any yep. carbon monoxide alarms in the hotel? <laughs> No. Actually, no. That's See? a good point. Good point. Um, any closing <laughs> thoughts? Joel, what What do you think? Um, haunted or not haunted? I think it was haunted by... Not by ghosts specifically, you know? It was like ghosts from Jack's past, you know, like... like Or 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 negative feelings, like... Like, ja- Jonathan- like Jack's... Jack, the, uh, Jack's demons, essentially, or the demons that this family brings into the hotel. Yeah, mm. exactly, mm. something like that. I, I think maybe if we relate it to the interpretation about Native Americans and Holocaust, maybe the movie itself, it's about how we, I'm sorry, how, how people treat other people that are different. I don't know if... if because most of this of, of the ghosts or bitsins that that appear in the movie are uh, are the two the two little girls the woman in the in room two forty seven and there's also 
I remember a, a scene that's very quick and uh, near the end. The serviceman is being blowjob by a He's bear. Being yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Serviceman is being serviced. Yeah. Yes, uh, if you have to edit that, I did it. I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't know how to say it. Uh, <laughs> I remember that scene, and it always uh, got me that why that scene is there. You know, it's just to present the craziness of the of the hotel, or maybe it means something more. Maybe it means that you know, uh, uh, people at that time didn't, and still today, unfortunately, uh, respect homosexuality you know and mm. um, i don't know maybe maybe it's there for that i i, I just can't you know it's, you know yeah like you say it's just a brief very brief scene it's not mm-hmm. very long it, it's, why is it there why is it there why mm-hmm. so there's so it's definitely made me want to go and watch the film again it's just like listening to all the theories and all uh, obviously the moon one is just completely insane <laughs> But it, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, whereas the other theories are a lot darker. But um, if anyone listening has uh, their own sort of theory uh, and take mm. on The Shining, I think we would all love to know. So, where can we find everyone? <laughs> All right, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Brown underscore twenty three. You can find me on Twitter at it's Doug Jam. And you can find me at Twitter at Joe M underscore one three six. Brilliant. And you can find me at the film B. You can also check us out at filmotomy.com. Uh, thank you all for joining me today. Um, remember to check out uh, when you finish this because we, you know, we don't want you to stay here forever and ever and ever and ever. And ever.